Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. On the 23rd of June, angry voters began pounding the glass doors of the Kentucky Exposition Center in Louisville. Polls for the state primary had shut at 6 p.m. while people were still trying to enter the building. The doors were opened again after one of the Democrat Senate candidates filed an emergency injunction to allow voting to continue. Charles Booker, a Black Lives Matter supporter, had been warning there weren't enough polling sites to cope with a high turnout. Most of Kentucky's African-American voters live in Louisville. The Expo Center was the only polling place in a county of 600,000 eligible voters. The day before the Kentucky primary, President Trump had been on his phone at dawn. Rigged 2020 election, he tweeted in capital letters. It will be the scandal of our times. With 59 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prudeau, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, will the result be trusted? For perhaps the first time in recent American history, a peaceful transfer of power is in question. COVID-19 is complicating an election system marred by long-running partisan battles over who's allowed to vote. The real wild card is the president himself questioning the validity of the electoral process while factions from both sides face off in the streets of some American cities. Might the election result itself be disputed? In this episode, we'll get the view from election officials and voting rights activists and look back at the last time the US government responded to racial strife with an effort to boost voter turnout. With me to discuss all of this are John Fasman, The Economist's Washington correspondent, and Idris Kaloun, the public policy correspondent. John, I have to begin with an apology to you. For some reason last week, we failed to mention that you're away on holiday on the eastern shore of Maryland chasing crabs and other delicious things. And I've had an absolute avalanche of complaints from your fan club on both sides of the Atlantic. Did you have a good time? It was great. It was great. The highlight was watching my older son's first movie, which he wrote and designed the costumes for and directed his cousins in. On general release, I don't think it would survive a copyright lawsuit from Lucasfilm, but it was a very well done piece of art. It was wonderful. That sounds awesome. Idris, how was your week? Uh, yeah, pretty good. Not much to complain about. I'm trying to put Tef in sourdough, so I will let you know how that goes. Yeah, report back on that. That sounds like an interesting experiment. Okay, well, we've got a lot to talk about in this podcast, so let's begin. People who fret about election integrity have more reasons to worry than normal this year. That's because there are a combination of political challenges and technical ones. 
Let's begin with the technical problems. The coronavirus epidemic throws up a whole list of those. For some clarity on what we should be worrying about, and what perhaps we shouldn't, I spoke to Myrna Perez, the Director for Voting Rights in Elections at the Brennan Centre for Justice. It's a progressive think tank that, among other things, conducts research and campaigns on widening voter access. The kinds of worries that we are having and are fearing are people not getting mail ballot applications in time to complete and submit mail ballots. We're worried that there's not going to be enough polling stations so that voters can vote safely and uh, without fear of coronavirus spread. We're worried that there's not going to be enough poll workers to staff those polling places. And we're worried that all of the fake and incendiary and salacious claims of voter fraud are going to make people so disgusted with the political process that they're not interested in participating. Ordinarily, when we talk about voter suppression, and your work at the Brennan Center has contributed to a lot of the research on this, you know, we're talking about things like where polling stations are situated, how many polling stations there are in what kind of districts. We're talking about ID laws that govern what identification voters can show when they turn up to cast their their vote. Those are the areas where there can be some manipulation of the rules of the game. What you're talking about overlaps with that, but it but it's slightly different, isn't it? And more kind of COVID specific. If you're going to kind of weigh the risks in 2020 on voter suppression, how much would you weight them towards those things that we've worried about? traditionally over the past, you know, 10 years or more? And, and how much towards the kind of COVID-specific problems that might discourage people from voting and might lead to a lower turnout than we'd otherwise be seeing? I think the COVID-created crises is making the voter suppression easier and will compound and exacerbate active voter suppression. And that is because election administrators are under-resourced in dealing with a sea change in how voters are expected to participate in the electoral process in November. Thus far, Congress has been unwilling to provide the resources that are needed to make sure that election administrators meet the moment. My hope is that the American public is going to make clear in no uncertain terms that their right to vote is fundamental and that they're going to cross whatever hurdles get placed in front of them. But the reality is that many of us are predicting there are going to be a lot of glitches on election day. This is an election that will probably go down in the history books for things not working ideally. I hope that I'm wrong, but most importantly, I hope that Americans are braced and ready for it. I also think that journalists need to accept that we may not know on election night who won. We have done ourselves a disservice that we've gotten used to finding out who wins on election night. And I think there are a lot of very good pro-voter reasons why that doesn't have to be the case. And I hope that Americans are braced for not knowing. Okay, note to self, do not expect a clear result on election night. John Fassman, how likely do you think the scenario is that some people have painted that because of an increase in postal voting, you could have a situation on election night where in some of the key swing states, perhaps Florida, perhaps Michigan, Donald Trump appears to be ahead on the night, 
And then as more postal votes are counted, Joe Biden catches up, creating a certain amount of confusion on election night where a lot of Americans are used to having the networks call the result for one side or another. I think we need to be prepared for that for two reasons. Number one is the large delta between the share of Donald Trump's voters expected to vote by mail and Joe Biden. So about half of Biden voters say they plan to vote by mail, where about only one in five of Trump's voters do. That means a lot of Biden's voters will have sent in their ballots by mail. In a lot of states, you're not allowed to start processing them until Election Day, which means they'll be spending a long time counting. The other phenomenon is called the blue shift, the phrase of the creation of Edward Foley, who noticed that over the course of the night, votes tend to shift toward Democrats for reasons that aren't well understood, right? It could be that Democrats tend to be concentrated in urban precincts, which take longer to count than rural, more sparsely populated Republican ones. It could be that Democrats also tend to make heavier use of provisional ballots because they are more transient, they're students, they live in cities and move more often. But for whatever reason, there tends to be a shift toward Democrats as the night goes on. And I think the risk there is that on election night, if Trump appears to be winning, he may call for a halt in ballot counting. Everything that's come in late is fraudulent, something like that. And as president, it may be more than just a Twitter admonition. He may actually try to pressure state election board secretaries of state to stop the counting. Already we've seen in a bunch of the primaries that have been conducted that the results came out late, they were delayed. You had New York City, right, where a bunch of those ballots weren't even counted. A lot were returned. I know that I've been reading about Pennsylvania is looking at making sure that they don't have a repeat of their delayed count in cities like Philadelphia. It seems like they've been a few dry runs in the time of COVID for running an election, and they haven't all gone that smoothly. So who knows what it'll look like when you have every state, every county trying to do this, even with a couple of extra months, it seems like it didn't help that much for the ones that were held in the summer. So maybe it'll be just as chaotic in the fall. And John, there are already a lot of signs from the campaigns, judging by the number of lawsuits they filed, over 200 COVID-related election lawsuits already filed in 43 states, that they're getting ready to challenge every sort of small detail of how this election is organized. Yeah, I think we can expect extended court battles after the election. Both sides are filling out their ranks of lawyers. This is going to feel to a lot of people of a certain age, like 2000, when there was an extended court battle over one state, which is Florida. Something like that could happen in multiple states. I mean, we're talking about huge increases in mail ballot volumes, which requires time. It requires people to count them. I spoke over the past few weeks with Michigan's Secretary of State and that office a couple of times they are expecting 65 to 70 percent of their ballots to be cast by mail. That's up from 24 percent in 2018. And that rate in 2018 is higher than a lot of them. Places like Wisconsin and North Carolina had single digit mail in ballots in, in 2016 to 2018. I mean, it's just a lot for states to cope with, and they're doing it under tremendous pressure. I wonder, does the risk that you know many Republicans don't accept the result of election or that there's an extended waiting period before we know the results. Doesn't it go down if Biden has a reasonably large victory as right now, you know, he's leading by seven or eight points in the polls that translates into a pretty large electoral college margin. Might it be so big that some of these worries just become less salient on election night? I tend to agree with you on that, Idris. I mean, if the polls are correct now, I mean, you can't extrapolate polls now at the beginning of September to Election Day. Maybe they'll be wrong. Maybe things will change between now and November 3rd. So heavily caveating that. But 
But say the polls turned out to be, you know, where they are now on election day, that would be a Biden landslide, frankly. And in that case, I think that some of the problems that we're anticipating, you know, they might still be there, but they'd sort of matter less. I think what could become really difficult in this election is if it's much closer than the polls currently suggest it will be. And then it's really worth both sides fighting over every last vote and and it could get super litigious. Do you think that's right, John Fasman? Or, Or do you think, you know, whatever the result is, we're in for, you know, a very long night on November 3rd and an awful lot of lawsuits? I think if Donald Trump loses by any margin, he will say the election was stolen from him. I think that claim becomes less credible if Biden pulls off, you know, a result commensurate with an eight point national lead in the polls, which means he is probably winning Florida on the night. He's probably ahead in a lot of the swing states. And I think if it looks like that sort of night, then the claims of fraud just become hard to sustain. I think if there's no winner on election night or if Donald Trump is ahead on election night and it looks like a squeaker, then things could turn really ugly. Not just court battles, but you'll have people on the street. You'll have the president sowing doubt about the results. It could be a really rocky period. Okay, thanks both. We'll talk a little bit more about what that could look like later in this podcast. And in a moment, we'll go back to the 1980s and the last big effort to boost voter turnout. But first, the usual reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you should be. It's really easy to sign up. You'll find the best offer by heading to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. The cover story in this week's paper is John Fasman's briefing explaining things that might just go wrong in November. Uh, There's also a lovely piece on British dog walkers. That link for a special rate on a new subscription is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. You'll find it in the notes for this episode on your podcast app. One way to measure confidence in the democratic process is by voter turnout. About 60% of eligible Americans voted in the last presidential election. That's not great by global standards. It means over 100 million Americans declined to exercise their right to pick the president. On current trajectories, people who vote will soon be outnumbered by Amazon Prime subscribers. It was the golden age for daytime TV, when voter turnout hit an all-time low. In September 1986, the Oprah Winfrey show, a ratings hit in Chicago, was broadcast across America for the first time. The topic? How to marry the man or woman of your choice. Turnout in the midterm elections, two months later, was a miserable 37%. Couch potato culture got some of the blame for voter apathy. But low turnout also exposed persistent problems with America's election system. The 1965 Voting Rights Act was supposed to have done away with measures designed to exclude black voters. Now, it became apparent that right was still being curtailed. A campaign began to make registering to vote easier to strip away obstacles that stood between marginalised voters and the ballot box, many placed there deliberately. The Democrats, then dominant in Congress, backed the proposals. President George H.W. Bush saw a voter registration bill passed by the Senate and the House, but vetoed it. He said it would mean an open door to fraud in US elections. The pressure wasn't letting up. In 1992, the need for an electoral outlet for strained race relations came into focus. Not guilty of the crime of assault by force likely to produce great bodily injury 
riots swept Los Angeles when police officers caught on handicam footage beating a young black man called Rodney King were acquitted. Shock quickly turned into anger, and anger turned into violence. It is the right of every American to vote. It is also the responsibility of every American to vote. After Bill Clinton defeated Bush, a rare loss for an incumbent president, the way was clear for the National Voter Registration Act. It became known as the Motor Voter Law. People could register to vote while getting a driver's license. It was never right to sit on the sidelines of our democracy. And now with Motor Voter, there will be fewer and fewer excuses for anyone to do so. The goal was to expand registration for Americans underrepresented at the polls. Not just minorities, but also disabled people and young people. Dr. King, Malcolm X, freedom of speech is as good as sex. The Rock the Vote campaign enlisted an array of musicians to persuade people to sign up. The pop icon Madonna appeared in an ad draped in the American flag and not much else. Don't just sit there, let's get to it. Speak your mind, there's nothing to it. Vote! And if you don't vote, you're going to get a spanky. Clinton expressed his appreciation when he signed the bill. Every year from now on, we're going to have more registered voters and more people voting. We're going to make the system work. The law empowers us to do it. It's now up to us to assume the responsibility to see that it gets done. Thank you very much. On the surface, the bill was a huge success. By the time of the next presidential election, 20 million more Americans had registered or re-registered to vote. 9 million newly registered voters were black. But when the 1996 election came around, real turnout was lower than ever. Fewer than half of eligible Americans voted at all. It was a stark reminder that it's not enough to give people the vote. You also have to give them something to vote for. We find our nation on a precipice, true tipping point. Three decades after she first took over American TV, that's something Oprah Winfrey understands more than most. She's putting the power of her eponymous cable network behind a bold new get-out-the-vote effort and offering her employees paid time off on election day. Vote. Vote like your life depends on it because it does. That is what we need next. Action. Idris, I just want to pause on this question of voter suppression for a moment, because I think we can all agree, everybody ought to be able to agree, at least that in a democracy, you want to make it as easy as possible for the maximum number of people to vote, and that in some sense, you can measure the health of democracy by turnout. So voter suppression in a normative sense is bad. But I find it at least really hard to figure out how much of it actually goes on, because you're trying to measure a negative, right? You're trying to work out how many people didn't do a thing, i.e. vote, because of attempts to suppress the vote. So how do you go about thinking about voter suppression? And, and how do you think about trying to measure the effect that it has on the outcome of elections? Yeah, this is a pretty important question. The thing that you're trying to consider is the counterfactual, right? How many people would have voted had there not been a voter ID law in place, which is the kinds of things that people think of when they think of voter suppression in the modern day. And in those cases, for all the attention that's been focused on them, when political scientists look at what actually happens to turnout rates, what actually happens to vote shares after states put in these voter ID laws, they actually find pretty mixed effects. So they can't really detect much of a difference on vote shares. I think it's important to remember, and sometimes we forget, that ever since 1965, 
and the efforts legislatively to make sure that African-Americans actually had the right to vote for a long time. Of course, they were excluded by force from being able to vote. That ever since then, they've rapidly converged with white turnout rates. And in fact, in 2008 and 2012, black turnout was actually higher than white turnout. Now, the, the racial groups that actually vote much less than either black or white Americans are Hispanics and Asians. I say that because a lot of the focus of reporting, and I think as it should be, is on African-Americans without IDs lacking access to vote. So far, the political science on what the effect has been is somewhat minimal. John, there are lots of really interesting facts in your briefing this week, but one of them that really jumped out at me was that the Bipartisan Policy Center, which is a reputable think tank, found that in 2016, 560,000 voters failed to cast a vote because of problems at polling places. That's a big number. When we read about problems like this in American election administration, to what extent generally would you say they're down to cock-ups, um, administrative failures, you know, failures of planning? And to what extent are they sort of deliberate attempts to put people off voting? Well, I think it's hard to disentangle those two motives. And to some extent, it doesn't much matter, right? It's much more productive to just look at what has actually happened. Of the voters that have to wait in long lines, a disproportionate share of them are African-American or Latino. The Leadership Conference on Civil Rights found that since Shelby County v. Holder, which is the Supreme Court case that eliminated the requirement that jurisdictions with a history of discrimination pre-clear any election changes with the Justice Department. Since that ruling in 2013, there have been about 1,700 polling place closures in jurisdictions formerly subject to pre-clearance. Those polling places are also in heavily minority districts. So is there a nefarious intent? Is it just administrative screw-ups? Doesn't really matter. The burden of these administrative screw-ups, if that's what they were, still falls heaviest on non-white voters. That points to another aspect of voter suppression, which is not just keeping people away from the polls, but discouraging them through long lines, through burdensome ID requirements, through closing polling places, or as Russia was doing, by targeting ads designed to sow cynicism about the system. So voter suppression isn't just forcibly keeping people away. It is also sort of discouraging them and trying to sour them on the democratic process. Idris, there's another thing that's on my mind as we have this discussion, which is that, and John alluded to it there with reference to the Russian attempts to influence the election in 2016, that as reporters, we have a duty to talk about, look at, report on problems that might occur um, in November. At the same time, you don't want to go around sort of sowing mistrust and giving the impression that the whole system is a total disaster and, and that it's not going to be fair, because that then undermines you know, faith in the system in a way that's really unhelpful. So how do you think about sort of weighing up those competing imperatives? Yeah, I think of myself as maybe not a skeptic on, on some of these things, but a, a bit more of a, a realist. So on the Russian disinformation side, for example, I think reporters have a duty to kind of call out this and, and report about this event, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of extraordinary that another nation state is affecting the American election. Now, the mistake that I think we sometimes make as reporters is in inferring that because Russia has sought to interfere in the election that it has done so meaningfully. And, you know, if you look at sort of the spending size of the Facebook ads that Russia did in, in 2016, for example, and you compare that to the mountain of hundreds of millions, billions of dollars that are spent on campaign finance to influence voters anyway, you would have to think that the Russian disinformation was so uniquely effective, sort of 10 
thousand times more effective to have like moved polls in the way that sometimes people think that it has moved. I'm not saying that don't report on this because it's extraordinary, right? And you need to talk about this and the Russians shouldn't be doing this and ditto for the Iranians or the Chinese who might be attempting to influence the election this time as well. But the existence of this problem doesn't mean that the problem is sort of corroding American democracy on the whole. And I think similarly with some of the voting problems that, that we see, I think it's you know, any person who is deprived of the right to vote because they had to wait in line for eight hours is a travesty and reporters should go there and should write about those things. It can also be true that on the whole, the median voter is sort of not affected by one of these things. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't ignore those outrageous cases because they are outrageous. But it's important also, I think, to kind of keep in mind on what the data actually say about all of these things. And I think that uh, there the record is, is a little bit mixed. Okay, thanks both. We'll hear from someone who knows more than pretty much anyone about how to hold an election in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Much of the alarm about how ugly this election could get relates to the toxic political atmosphere the Trump presidency has brought about. If the election is to pass without a hitch, officials in the 8,000 separate electoral jurisdictions across America are going to have to hold their nerve. Can they do it? Professor Kathleen Hale runs the graduate program in election administration at Auburn University. She trains and certifies election officials across the country. There's no taking the politics out of the American elections process. It's the heartbeat of the political system. It's how we exercise our political decisions. The decision makers about those policy decisions, though, are, are not, by and large, not the administrators who execute them. And I say that knowing and wanting to be clear in putting it out there that a decent proportion of the local election officials in the United States at the local level are themselves elected. And so they're extremely accountable. I've worked with thousands of them. I can't tell you one who has ever said anything other than, I would just like to know what the rules are in time to be able to implement the rules accurately. Well, that's reassuring to hear. President Trump's repeatedly said that voting by mail magnifies the possibility of fraud. What's the evidence for that view? No scientific peer-reviewed study that I'm aware of suggests that that's true. There are safeguards for both the processing on the way out of the election office and on the way back in to the election office. It's been used for quite, quite a long time, including with the U.S. military. And so I, 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 I'm not aware, I'm simply not aware of any evidence that this is a, a method for facilitating fraud. And a lot of people have argued that if you have a big increase in voting by mail for the November elections, which looks likely at the moment, it's also likely that that will delay the count on election night and that we might 
because of the changes in the process, be less likely, therefore, to have a clear result on election night. Do you think that's the case? Or just, does it just depend entirely on what the likely margin of victory is for either side? Oh, the fantasy of an actual result on election night is perhaps my favorite topic. The idea that we've ever had the actual official count on election night is simply not true. The count on election night, if we were to close the count at the moment that the polls closed, or even at the end of the counting within the precinct or within the poll site, we would disenfranchise voters. We have ballots that are still coming in that by state law can be counted at any variety of a number of, of time periods, right? If I could wave a wand, it would be that we would think about having legitimate, verifiable, accurate election results, maybe the first week in December. If we were to go back and look at previous large elections, the certification periods in in some states are three or four weeks long. So the the actual final results simply can't be known. Everybody loves a horse race. I'm right there with everyone else watching three different TVs and scrolling through my phone and, and trying to, you know, look at the predictions, but that's all they are. With all due respect to all of the political journalists out there, uh, that's all they've ever been. We, we call them election night results, but we probably shouldn't because it creates the impression then mm. that anything that happens after that day or that next yeah. morning is, is somehow suspect. Finally, Kathleen, this is a hard area to talk about risks to how the vote might go, because whilst you want to point out what the risks are and what might go wrong, you also don't want to be in the business of undermining faith in the electoral process, because that's counterproductive, right? You said earlier that you're an optimist about this whole system. Why, why are you an optimist? Oh, I've spent years working with the people who do this work, and they're commitment to public service and their dedication to following the process, whatever it is, following the process correctly, and their ethical code, if you will, about being accurate, regardless of party, is impeccable. John, I found Kathleen's assurances there heartening assurances, particularly about local election administrators. I mean, you might imagine looking at, say, a state like Florida, where you have 67 counties and each county elects an election supervisor on a partisan slate. So these elections are literally administered by people who are elected as Republicans and Democrats, and they then have to be the referees. You might think, looking at such a system, that it was you know, really open on, on a sort of ground level to partisan bias. But, but she says that's, that's not the case. Does that chime with your reporting? Yeah, that's mostly what I found, that I, I spoke to election officials in not every state, but probably well over half. They were elected for the most part as Democrats or Republicans, but they all were they all felt it was important to maintain public confidence in the process. We think of democracy as a way of choosing winners, but it may be more useful to think of it as a way of producing satisfied losers. That is, you have to have confidence in the process, and the candidate who loses must have confidence and must project confidence that he or she lost fairly. I think that's what makes this election so concerning, is that Donald Trump has a real problem admitting anything has ever gone wrong for him. And when you have a president who is not prepared to gracefully accept defeat and 
is prepared to use the machinery of the state to maintain his power, things really could break down. And because Americans generally don't wait until early December for the result, you know, they don't wait until California has counted all its ballots. That process of, you know, creating a result that everybody can accept, to some extent, is the job of the TV networks on the night, right? And the AP, people who come up with credible projections before the full result is in, you know, much to the dismay of Kathleen and some election officials who are still doing their counts. Idris, those projections, even though necessarily partial, have tended to be accurate in the past, haven't they? Yeah, I can't think of a time when the AP call has been incorrect. And, you know, it makes sense that the instantaneous projections are actually pretty good because, you know, the electoral college votes are apportioned according to the majority winner in each state. You don't need to wait for California to count all of its ballots to know that the Democrat won. In fact, we can probably say that right now, like Biden has won all 55 electoral votes, right? Maybe I'm giving her a heart attack (laughs) when I say that. But, you know, there's a reason that we've used the projections and there's a reason that we're not accustomed to this sort of authoritarian shuffle towards the incumbent that you might see in countries in Latin America. The votes that come in tend to resemble the votes that have already been cast. The vote shares might shift a little, but probably not enough to actually flip the result unless it's right at the knife's edge at which case the AP or these kinds of people will just delay a call. So maybe I'm, I'm just speaking too much in defense of, of journalists, but I do think that you know, the system has worked reasonably well so far. And part of the system, too, is that the candidates have to wait until the networks, until AP have made those projections before declaring you know, victory or admitting that they've lost. There are some real reasons to doubt that Donald Trump would do that this time around. You know, In the midterms in Florida in 2018, he put out a tweet saying election officials in Florida should stop counting the votes because the Republican candidates are well ahead. And I think he was worried that as more votes were counted, the Democrats might get a little bit closer. And he just said, stop counting the votes. You know, Any more votes that come in are just, are just fraud. There are some strong reasons to worry that we might see something similar on election night before AP, before CNN, Fox, MSNBC have called the election. President Trump says, you know, we need to stop counting. I've, I declare victory. That is a concern. Ironically, I think one bulwark against people taking that seriously is President Trump himself and his habit that we've become used to of him just saying crazy stuff on Twitter and people essentially brushing it off. So I think that if he comes out and declares victory at, you know, 7 p.m. on election night, it's alarming and he shouldn't do that and a president shouldn't do that. But I'm not sure that a lot of people other than people who work for him or hardcore partisans will take him seriously. Yeah, I think the institutional guardrails that American democracy has on on things like elections are are reasonably strong. And um, I'm sure Trump will, will say Yeah, we we saw in the last election that he won and he still claimed that there was massive voter fraud. I'm sure that in this time, you know, regardless of the outcome, even if it's a victory, he will claim the same. But I I struggle to see how that might actually change the mechanics of vote counting and these sorts of things, because by and large, they're run by decent people who uh, try to uphold the law, I think. We also should remember that the trust issue cuts both ways, right? There are a fair number of Democrats who, if Donald Trump wins, will claim the election was somehow stolen through voter suppression, through Russian hacking. And so in a sense, the fact that we're even having this conversation is a victory for adversaries who want 
to sow doubt in America about democracy and about the sanctity of the process. Whatever happens in any election, there's always a winner who feels good and always a loser who feels bad, as do their supporters. I think in this case, the sheer stakes of the election and the fever pitch of America over the last four years make those emotions heightened going in. That's another reason to be concerned whatever happens on election night. I worry that there's a twisted rationality for either side fear-mongering about the election being stolen. It's a really good way to get your base to turn out because you're worried that unless you go, unless you cast your vote, whether by vote or whether by mail or in person, that your vote won't be counted. While that might be good at getting your base out, it's obviously corrosive to the democracy at large. But I worry that both sides have seen the appeal of that sort of argument and sort of the forces of negative partisanship that are already so bad in this country will probably only get worse if you start to think, as I think a lot of Americans already do, that the other side is willing to cheat and uh, flout the law in order to ensure that they will win. Yeah, I agree with that. I, for one, I know it's a couple of months away, but I'm going to be watching Fox on election night because though Fox's opinion team, the Tucker Carlson's, Sean Hannity's, those folks, uh, have been all in for President Trump for the past four years, Fox actually has a pretty good election night data operation. You know, they're well respected when it comes to their own election projections. And in some senses, given that the networks now have this important role in America's unwritten constitution in calling the election on election night long before all the votes are in, you know, the people in that Fox data team, the Fox equivalent of Elliot Morris, will have this weighty responsibility of potentially, you know, if the election goes the way the polls say it will at the moment, breaking to Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson that the guy they've been cheerleading for for the past four years hasn't won the election. And if it happens, that will be a pretty intriguing thing to watch in real time. Before I let you both go, there's a quiz. I know Charlotte, who's on vacation this week, will really be missing this. She'll probably be answering the questions at home while listening before either of you get to them. Okay, let's begin. This all comes from an era that was way before your time, Idris. So um, Fasman ought to have the edge here. We're going back to Madonna's effort to rock the vote, which caught the attention of our Lexington columnist in November 1990. The column noted that the pop star was part of a phalanx of celebrities backing the Democrats. It cited just two counterexamples, two notably chiselled Hollywood Republicans. Can you name them? Arnold Schwarzenegger, gotta be one of them. And Chuck Norris? Warren Beatty? Arnold Schwarzenegger was one of them. The other one, Charlotte definitely would have got this, was, of course, Charlton Heston, who is for a long time the president of the NRA. That's right. And an enthusiastic participant at Republican conventions. Arnie was elected governor of California back in 2003. Charlton Heston had been an anti-war Democrat in the 1960s and asked why he switched parties to support Ronald Reagan. He replied, I didn't change. The Democratic Party changed. According to The Economist, every Democrat dreaded the endorsement of which other anti-war actor? Jane Fonda. Yeah. Jane Fonda is correct. She was photographed sitting on a North Vietnamese anti-aircraft gun when she visited Hanoi in 1972 to protest the war. And nicknamed Hanoi Jane as a result, she since said the photo was a huge mistake. All right. Thank you, John. Thank you, Idris. Thanks, John. Thanks so much, John. That's all from us. If you like the podcast, please tell people to listen, leave a rating and a review in the usual places. 
Thanks to all of you who emailed us at radio at economist.com. One particularly astute correspondent spotted that my holiday brain confused Michael Flynn's CV last week. He was the president's national security advisor, which, of course, isn't the same thing as the director of the National Security Agency. And apologies to all those fine Americans who work in the NSA. Keep sending the feedback, please. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.